Well, I'm thankful for uh, Pastor Morgan Maitland of Summit Bible Church who uh, filled this pulpit last week and for his able handling of the Word of God. I was able to bring your greetings to uh, Summit Bible as I filled that pulpit over there last week and uh, was able to return the favor and uh, just, I love the partnership that we have in Christ between our fellowships and to knowing that uh, there are others uh, just a little ways away that are seeking to labor in the same work that we are here at Foothill. And uh, it's sweet, the, the partnership and the fellowship that we have with those saints over there. Well, as we come to God's word this morning, let's open in a word of prayer. Our God and Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to open your word. You have revealed yourself to us in the pages of scripture and Lord, we don't want to take that for granted. And more than that, Lord, we want to come with an open ear. We want to come with humble hearts. We want to hear your voice through your word. And so I pray that you would prepare each one of our hearts, that we would not put up defenses, make excuses, but instead we would seek to be taught from our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I want to begin this morning with a question. What is the future life in your mind and heart that inspires you? What is the grand vision that propels you forward each day that gives you hope as you press on? In other words, what promise of future reward makes all the suffering in the here and now worth it? Humanity is naturally driven by such Vision, such portraits of the future, such promises of the good life, the idyllic future that we hope to get to someday. Mankind will endure any hardship as long as the promise that is out there in front of them is clear enough, is true enough for them to grasp. You see this in a simple way with say the Spanish conquistadors who traveled over sea and mountain didn't matter the obstacle, they continued to press ahead in order to reach the gold, in order to reach the prize that they believed would make them filthy rich and famous back in their homeland. I think of those Buddhist monks and others who endure great asceticism in order to achieve nirvana, in order to reach those heights of ecstasy. In ancient Judaism, the grand portrait of the future, the vision that the, the faithful Jew lived by was the vision of the messianic kingdom. The prophets who had spoken to that nation over many generations told them of an era in which the planet would no longer be under the curse of sin, that sin would be done away with, even their personal sin would be washed away. It's told of a, that the banquet table would overflow with food and drink. There would be so much abundance, they, didn't know, they wouldn't know what to do with it all. It would be a time of great feasting and celebration. And the Old Testament made this clear that this would take place here upon the earth. But also made clear that those who would participate in that great and grand future messianic banquet would be the righteous. 
The righteous would be the ones who would inherit that land that would participate and live forevermore. The wicked would be cast out. The wicked would have no place in that future idyllic kingdom. And so, as the Jews lived under that vision of the future, they were constantly asking themselves, how is it that I can make sure that I am going to participate in that future kingdom? I'm going to participate in that glorious future day. How can I know that I am among the righteous? Well, the Old Testament was clear that the righteous were those that followed the law, followed Torah. They followed the, what God had instructed in the law. But we're going to meet a young man today in our text who thought that he was in that righteous category. He thought that he had followed all the laws. He was doing the right things to be righteous. And that he would be included in that eternal kingdom. But he soon found out that he fell far short. I invite you to open your personal copy of God's word if you're not there already to the book of Luke. The gospel of Luke chapter 18 where we'll find our text for this morning. Luke chapter 18, as we continue to work our way through this gospel. Our passage this morning continues the theme that has begun earlier in the chapter. From verse 9 onward, Luke has been showing us, through Jesus' words, what it means to be truly saved. And there's been different ways to talk about being saved. We see that the tax collector talks about being saved. Uh, asking God to be merciful to him and Jesus declares him to be justified. That's one way to talk about it, being justified. As we'll see, as we saw last time in the verses 15 through 17, it's talking about entering the kingdom or receiving the kingdom. Today we'll see it's talking about inheriting eternal life or being saved or entering the kingdom. These all speak of the same things. In verses 9 through 14, we saw that Jesus contrasts two individuals, the tax collector and the Pharisee, you'll remember. The Pharisee who delighted or took pride in his own deeds, believing that he was righteous, his own obedience to the law is what he took confidence in. Meanwhile, the tax collector who recognized he had no righteousness simply cried out to the Lord and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that is the one who went home justified. That is the one who went home saved. Jesus then went into uh, a few verses here in verses 15 through 17 in which he brought infants to him and he used these infants as an illustration to say that if you're going to enter into the kingdom, you must receive the kingdom as if you were a child with the helplessness and dependence as a child. You must renounce all of your self-confidence. Well, today in our passage, we're going to pick up in verse 18. And we're going to see a man who is the exact opposite of that childlike faith. Jesus says you must receive the kingdom like a child and then we see one who refuses to do so. Instead of confessing his helplessness and dependence, he asserts his achievement and self-sufficiency. And in this, he misses out on the path that would lead to life. Let's begin by reading our text, verses 18 through 30. Follow along as I read. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? 
No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Friends, in this text, we see a man who claims he wants to find the path that leads to life. He wants eternal life. That's his question. But he fails to enter it. He fails to achieve it. And in his failed attempt, Jesus uses that to teach us what is exactly needed for us to have eternal life. And so this morning, we're going to see six features of the path that leads to life so that we can know if we are truly on that path. Friends, we need to use this text to help us to see if we truly know if we are on the path that leads to life. There's six things that we need to know about this path. And the first is this. The path that leads to life cannot be earned with our achievement. The path that leads to life cannot be earned with our achievement. We see this in verse 18. Look at it with me. It says, a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This passage begins with a question. This ruler steps up and asks him this question and very well could have been a response to what he just said about children in verse 17. He says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And then the ruler says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Again, throughout this chapter, as I said, there are several phrases that describe the same thing. Entering the kingdom of God, inheriting eternal life, being saved, all of these are equal phrases that Jesus uses to describe the same thing. Are you on the path? Are you in? Do you have salvation? And do you have the promise of eternal life? Here in verse 18, it's about inheriting eternal life. Now, how does a Jewish ruler, we don't know much about this man, uh, what he was ruler of, was a ruler of the synagogue, was a ruler in the city, we're not sure. And it's not pertinent to our text. But how does a Jewish man like this think in these categories, inheriting eternal life? Well, I believe he, they pull in the idea of eternal life 
from Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, which says this, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Here's a promise in the book of Daniel, chapter 12, in which there will be a future resurrection, some to righteousness and everlasting life, and the wicked to everlasting punishment and contempt. And so the Jews understood that there was this future day, again, that vision in which there will be everlasting life, but not for everyone, only for the righteous. And so this combined with the teaching about the messianic kingdom that was going to take place here upon the earth and is spoken of throughout the Old Testament as an inheritance of the righteous. Jesus even picks up on this, you'll remember in the Beatitudes, the meek shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. They will inherit this kingdom that takes place here upon the earth. And so this man takes these truths and comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life, to be a part of this great inheritance? Now this must have been a common way of speaking because we see almost an identical question asked by the lawyer, the expert in the law in Luke chapter 10. This is the, the man who set up the whole uh, account that led into the parable of the Good Samaritan. A lawyer who asked Jesus, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Almost an identical question. But there seems to be a fatal flaw in this man's question. He believes that eternal life that salvation is something that can be earned, that can be achieved. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Again, we don't know much about this man. Matthew, the gospel writer, tells us he's young. But we see even from this first question, paired with what we see throughout the rest of this narrative, that he is seeking to stand upon his own accomplishments. He's seeking to stand upon his own good deeds, believing that what he has done can somehow obtain and earn him access into this eternal heavenly kingdom. He thinks that he can achieve eternal life on his own efforts. Friends, this is a mistake that has been made in the centuries since and even in our own day. The people began to take confidence in their own deeds, in their own good works, thinking that if they simply do enough religious things and they pack them all together, then somehow they'll outweigh their bad deeds, that somehow it, God will, will grade on a curve and he'll, and he'll look to all these good deeds and, and they'll earn their way into heaven. But friends, God's standard is perfection. There can be no unrighteousness in us. We can't slip up even once. We know that we all have sinned. The Bible's clear that there is no one that is righteous. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. None of us stand righteous in his sight. And that the wages of our sin is death. All of us are broken by sin. All of us are stained by sin deep on the inside. And all of us stand guilty before the bar of God's justice because of our sin. And so because of our condition, friends, salvation cannot be earned. It's like we're at the bottom of a muddy pit with muddy walls and we try to climb our way up and we just slide ourselves back down and we get worse and worse the more that we try. We can't get out of this mess on our own. We cannot climb our way out. We can't do enough good deeds to unlock salvation. 
We cannot do enough religious things to ensure our place on the path to life. And so the first thing that we need to recognize on this path to life, this way to which we can see eternal life ourselves, we must recognize that we cannot achieve it on our own. But there's a second feature we need to recognize, and that is that it must be entered through Jesus alone. This path must be entered through Jesus alone. And we see this in verses 19 through 22. This is in Jesus' reply in his exchange with this ruler. Upon hearing the man's question, Jesus asks him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now there are some that would like to take this verse and they've twisted it to say that Jesus is confessing the fact that number one, he's not God, and number two, that he's not fully good, that it's only God who's good and he's not it. But that is a misinterpretation of this verse. Jesus is getting the man to think about, why in the world did you call me good? Why did you use that label? Why did you call me good? Because let's be clear, there's no one good except God alone. And, and so Jesus makes it clear here from the beginning that God is in a class all by himself. There is no one else that shares this title of truly good. He is the only one that is good. Father, Son, and Spirit, holy, righteous, and good. The one God alone is perfectly good. Everything else, everyone else is tainted with sin. And so this is an allusion even to the first commandment, that there's only one worthy of right, uh, worship, only one deserving of our affection, and that is to love God the Lord who is truly good. But Jesus goes on, he says, you know the commandments. And he lists off five of them, five of the 10 commandments, and they're all from the second half of the Decalogue. The second half that refers more to how people are to treat one another. He doesn't give them an order here, but he says, you sh do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. Four negative, one positive, and they all have to do with our treatment of one another, our treatment of each other's property, and this reality that stands behind this is that if, if there was truly a love for God, then there would be a, a ability to treat one another fairly as well, because the ways that we treat the Lord is the way that we then treat one another. If we treat God rightly, we'll treat others rightly. Now, it might seem like an interesting choice for Jesus to start listing off some laws. Why is he giving him commandments here? Well, he's trying to turn this man's attention to the Lord. He's trying to get his attention to God and to recognize that he himself falls short of God's perfect, perfect standard. And standing behind these commandments that are here are the two greatest commandments, you'll remember. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength is the greatest. And Jesus said, then the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. These are what should be governing this man's actions. And if this ruler knows these commands and sought to do them as the law requires, then he would have set the Lord first in his heart, wouldn't he? If he truly wanted to follow these commands as they were laid out in the law, then he would have set the Lord first. And he would have loved him with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
But as it is, he, Jesus revealed that that wasn't the case. This man didn't have Jesus and the Lord as his first priority. This man, upon hearing the listing of these commandments, I can imagine maybe getting a little smirk on his face. He's like, oh, you know, those, yeah. Well, you may not know this, Jesus, but um, uh, I've, I've kept all these from my youth. I'm actually a gold star on this. I, um, expert, all my friends say, you know, I'm, I'm the best at carrying these out. You know, he tries to be a little mild-mannered in it, but, but he states it clearly. All these things, verse 21, I have kept from my youth. He believes he's kept these commandments. And he's thinking, okay. So I walk up to this teacher, this new, te this new uh, te rabbi on the block, and I ask him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he tells me, oh, I just got to do these five commandments. Well, pff, this is like, this is easy. This is stuff that I that I've already, I've already dealt with. I've got this. If that's all that's required to obtain eternal life, then I'm in good shape. Thank you. Got my question answered. Appreciate it. But this man is like the Pharisee earlier in the chapter. You'll remember that the Pharisee stood before the Lord and, and what did he do? He recited his own obedience. He recited his own goodness. He said, Lord, I, I fast. I do all these things for you. This man, this ruler here, is doing the very same thing. He recognizes that he is one who is keeping the law, and he's proud of it. He's smug in his self-sufficiency. He's like the 99 in Luke 15, verse 7, that don't need repentance. They do need repentance. They just don't think they need repentance. Because he believes he has a perfect track record, he believes his entrance into the kingdom will be on his own righteousness. But Jesus knows the real issue. He knows that this man does not love Yahweh with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his strength. He knows that deep down this ruler is worshiping another God, a lowercase g, God. Look at what Jesus then says next in verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus goes for the jugular. He goes exactly where this man needs to feel the pinch and that is in his pocketbook. He says one thing you still lack. That one thing is his loyalty and allegiance to God alone. You see, he's tacked on religion onto his life. It's been very convenient for him to go about all these religious duties and do these things, but he hasn't yet surrendered himself to the Lord. He doesn't yet confess him as Lord over his life. And so Jesus tells him, because of his riches, this man needs to sell all that he has and distribute to the poor. And then he'll have treasures in heaven. The reason for this is that Jesus calls this man to divest of the very things that hold sway over his heart. 
Jesus knows that the idol that this man is bowing down to, the idol that this man is worshiping is his money and his possessions and his riches. And so the very point of obedience that this man needs, the very point of repentance is for him to divest himself of his riches. Jesus has made it clear in Luke 16 that man cannot serve both God and money. You cannot have two masters. In this case, this ruler was serving mammon, was serving money. Money was his God. And so Jesus calls him, you want to inherit eternal life? You want assurance of being in that future kingdom? Then you must show your repentance and show your commitment by letting go of all that you have. Now this was not simply liquidating all of his extra stuff that he bought that was unnecessary. This was liquidating the family estate. This would have been saying that his loyalty is no longer with his family. He is renouncing and letting go of it all. And now he's set upon Christ and he's dependent on God alone because now he's got nothing. Jesus, you see, is trying to help to lead this man to have faith like a child, to be dependent and helpless instead of self-sufficient. Jesus wants him to switch his loyalties. And in this we see the remarkable feature in this text. Jesus boldly states that the path to eternal life for this man and for others is through Jesus alone. Notice that the end of his statement in verse 22, he says, and come follow me. Showing that what is the gate to get to the path to eternal life? What is the gate that people have to walk through in order to be able to have the assurance of salvation? It's through Jesus. It's through following him. This man could not claim to follow God, follow God's law, and yet ignore Jesus. That's not an acceptable option. He had to sell all, give to the poor, and follow Jesus. And this is the same true for everybody. All those who wish to have the assurance of eternal life, to enter the path of life, must repent of their sins and follow Jesus wholeheartedly. He is God's son. He is God's chosen representative. He is the one that he has placed before all mankind that we must trust and believe in him and him alone. How we respond to Jesus is how we respond to God. Now this verse is not calling each one of us to sell everything that we have and for us all to become paupers because of us divesting of everything that we own. This is a descriptive verse in Jesus' exchange with this particular man, but there's something for us to learn from it. And that is that we must divest ourselves of all the things that are false gods, all the things that are idols to us, all the things that capture our hearts and our affections, all the things that keep us from following Jesus wholeheartedly, whatever they might be, whether it's money like him, whether it's fame, power, 
sex, whatever is the idol that causes us to stray, to keep our gaze, to keep our loyalties and affections from Christ and Him alone, we must renounce. We must lay aside. If we would know eternal life, we must follow Jesus wholeheartedly. Friends, we live in a pluralistic age in which what I've been saying about everything through Jesus alone is not popular, sounds too narrow, too cold, but with as much warmth and love as I can muster, I, this, is, this is a call to life. And it's not my word, it's the word of Christ alone. And each one of us must continue to not only trust that and believe, that, believe this in our own hearts to see that we are trusting in him alone, but we must proclaim this message as well, that it is, life is found in Jesus alone. And we tell it to a lost and dying world with a broken heart, that they might know him, that they might be saved from the wrath to come. There are not many roads up the mountain that all lead to the same place. There is a broad road that leads to destruction. And there are many that are on it, and it looks comfortable. And then there's a narrow road that is difficult, and it's hard to enter it. We can take nothing with us, but only ourselves. And that is the road that leads to life. That is the road that, that Christ calls us to. And that is the road that we must continue to stay faithful to and we must call others to as well. This idea that there are many ways to God is of the devil. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Friends, may we be faithful to proclaim this merciful message to lost humanity and keep the exclusivity of Christ at the forefront. But there's a third feature of this path that we need to see this morning. And that is that this path can be obstructed by our possessions. This path can be obstructed by our possessions. We already see it going here, right? In the, in the case of this young man. Verse 23. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus had pursued this man. He sought to win over this ruler, sought to show him the path of life, but his response is tragic. He's deeply sorrowful. This word for being very sad is used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26. It's the same kind of deep, soul-piercing sorrow. This man is overcome emotionally. You need to understand that. He's not just like, eh, well, sorry, Jesus, not what I want. No, he is, he is deeply troubled. And I believe there's a lesson in this for us. And that is that just because we or someone else expresses sorrow, even great sorrow over something, does not mean that true repentance has taken place. Yes, sorrow is a necessary step in the path of repentance, but it does not entail completely what repentance is. Repentance is a turning, a changing of mind, and a turning of behavior that we stop doing what we were doing and we change and we turn and do the right thing. And it includes sorrow over the sin that we pursued. There should be deep sorrow. 
But this man shows us that just because there's deep sorrow doesn't mean that a change of heart has taken place. Now if Jesus had said something different to the man, let's say if he said, no young man, if, if you would fund this great humanitarian effort or if you would fund this great, this great school for the giving of the law or some sort of thing that he could throw his money at, he would rise up and say, all right, that's what I'm talking about. Those are the kind of good deeds I want to do. I'm ready to do them. I'm ready to spend. I'm ready to do it for God. But Jesus, what he asked him was way too difficult. He was forced to separate from the idols that were controlling his heart. And Jesus then uses the example of the sorrowful young man to teach a vital truth. Let's look at verses 24 and 25. It says, Jesus, seeing that he had become very sad, had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus makes it very clear. It is how difficult it is for those who have wealth as an idol to enter the kingdom of God. And it's not just extremely difficult, it's actually impossible. It's impossible because consider the illustration that he uses. A camel through the eye of a needle. Now there are some in ages past that have tried to explain this different ways that there was a door in Jerusalem that was called the needle's eye and a camel had to get on its knees and take off its saddle and kind of like, I mean just that image is kind of funny. Um, but there was no such gate in Jerusalem called the needle's eye. Uh, others would try to say, oh, what this meant was sometimes they called uh, ropes on a ship as, as a camel and that doesn't fail. This is meant to be an image in which it doesn't work. To get a camel through the eye of a needle doesn't work. It's impossible. And that's exactly Jesus' point. It is impossible for those who serve money, who serve it with their life and with their affection and with their worship, to enter the kingdom of God. No man can serve two masters. Now, Jesus is not saying that a rich person can't be saved at all and that those who are rich are hopeless. He's saying that on their own, rich people are impeded from entering the kingdom by their riches. And as we'll see, this was a shock to the people that heard this because they believed that if they were rich, if this man had all these possessions, that he was especially blessed by God. God must be just flooding him with all this wealth because God's so pleased with him. Unfortunately, some of that same mentality can enter our own minds as well. But they also assumed that if they had all this wealth, they could do more good than everybody else. A poor person would look at a rich person and say, well, they have a lot of expendable wealth. They could be able to do so much good for people. And yet me, I've got nothing, but they're able to do so much good. They must be at the top of the list. They must be at the front of the line to enter the kingdom. But Jesus flips it all on his head. He reveals that many possessions, rather than making one better in God's eyes, rather creates an obstacle or a barricade in salvation. Because someone who is self-made and believes in himself to be self-sufficient doesn't need to be saved. They will save themselves. They'll say, how high? Okay, I'll jump. And folks, this is a danger for us. Of course, there's always others that are richer than us, that have more than we have. And yet we have much in this 
great United States of America. But our wealth can capture our hearts too. Our desire for stuff, our things, our house. Doesn't matter where it is, we can be beholden to our possessions, whether it be in our driveway, in our bank account, or in our pockets. And these things can become idols for us. And we can try to serve our idol and serve the Lord at the same time. And Jesus says, it's not possible. Of course, there's those who serve the idol of money that don't mind adding Jesus in on the side. But Jesus wants us to surrender our life and our all to him. But this call that Jesus has for us to surrender everything is too costly. It's too painful. The church father, Augustine, said it's one thing not to wish to hoard up what one, uh, what one does not have. It's another thing to scatter what has been accumulated. The former is like refusing food, the latter like cutting off a limb. To renounce, to let go is hard and it's costly, but this is what Jesus calls for. Well, how could someone who's so entrenched, how could someone like this ruler ever be saved? Well, it's gonna take a miracle of God. And that leads us to our fourth feature regarding this path that leads to life. And that is, it can be accessed only through a miracle by God. It can be accessed only through a miracle by God. As the disciples heard this statement that Jesus gives, they're shocked. They assume the rich were blessed. They assume they would be at front, the front of the line. And so once they hear this, they say, verse 26, then who can be saved? Listen, if those at the front of the line can't get in, then, then what's the hope for the rest of us? In response, Jesus makes a simpler, simple declaration that reasserts the truth found in the whole of the Bible and in the truth of the gospel. He says, what is possible with man, what is impossible with man, is possible with God. In other words, he says, mankind is incapable of being saved on his own. Then who can be saved? Well, if it were left in man's hands, no one. No one. It's impossible. People as mere mortals are unable, incapable of obtaining eternal life, obtaining salvation. Friends, it is impossible for you and I on our own to enter the kingdom. It is impossible for you and I to be saved on our own. There's nothing that we can do to make it happen. It's outside of our grasp. It's impossible for us. We don't have the power. We don't have the ability. But Jesus wanted his audience then and us today to see that it is truly impossible. He wants that to sink in for us. That we cannot accomplish salvation and we're back to where we began. We cannot achieve salvation. But notice that what's the other side of it? That with God, all things are possible. It's possible with God. And friends, this is the good news of the gospel that is proclaimed from cover to cover in the Bible that God saves sinners. Salvation is of the Lord. And it's only possible with God because salvation requires at first an act of the will of God. God must initiate salvation. He decides who will be saved. Dead people, spiritually dead people, cannot decide to become alive. So too, we must require God to act on our behalf. Without it, there is no salvation. 
But knowledge doesn't require an act of his will, but it requires a movement of his grace. We deserve his wrath. So if he saves anyone, it's because of his mercy towards us. Not because of any merits that we have. No, we have, we have demerits. We are ill-deserving, not just non-deserving. We are ill-deserving. We deserve hell and his wrath forever, but instead we've been shown grace. We've received salvation. This is because of his mercy. But not only does salvation require an act of his will and a movement of his grace, it requires a display of his power. What is it that's going to take a sinner bound in chains, enslaved to sin, to be able to be free and to walk in the kingdom of light when he once was in the domain of darkness? It takes the mighty act of God. What is it that takes a dead man, a someone who is spiritually dead with no life and no vitality to be able to rise again in newness of life? It takes the power of God. And friends, that is only in the hands of the Lord. With man it's impossible. With God it is possible. Salvation comes from God. We don't contribute anything. God does 100% of it. If he did 95% and we did 5%, then we'd get 5% of the glory. But he gets 100% of the glory, friends. It's all of him, and he's going to get all the praise. And we simply sit back in amazement and wonder that God would be so kind and so merciful to work in our stony hearts and save us. We must come like a child, recognizing how helpless we are, how dependent we are, how we bring nothing to the table. This ruler tried to come to God as an adult. He tried to flaunt his self-sufficiency. He's a self-made man. He's made it in the world. He's made it in the spiritual world, the religious world. But Christ calls everyone to come to him as a child. There's no adults in the kingdom, you could say. There's only children. We're called children of God, not adults of God. He calls us to cry out with the tax collector, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And as he does, as we do, he graciously saves sinners. But let's look at the fifth feature of the path to life. It requires the renunciation of all things. It requires the renunciation of all things. After Jesus makes his statement about salvation being possible with God, Peter speaks up for the disciples and says, see, we have left our homes and followed you. Now this could sound a little self-serving, but I believe that this is actually a positive statement that, that, Paul, that Peter makes and Jesus doesn't correct him. He uses and plays off of it because Peter and the disciples here serve as a positive example. The, the, ta the, the, the ruler is a negative example. He holds on to his things and doesn't want to follow Jesus. Peter says, but Lord, we have left everything. We've done what you've said. And Jesus says, yes, I know. I know you left your family. I know you left your business. And G Jesus here reaffirms what he said back in Luke chapter 14, where he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So here in Luke 18, Jesus reinforces what he already said in Luke 14 and basically says, yes, if you have obeyed me in this way and you have renounced all and you've let go of everything, you will not be disappointed. It will be worth it. And this is a reminder here, friends, in verse 29 where he says, 
Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God. This is a reminder that renunciation must be a part of the call to discipleship. We've already seen that with the ruler. We must let go. And this may call for hard times. When we look to Christians in other countries, when we look to Christians in prior ages, and look to the New Testament, we see that sometimes it is required that we leave family that we be disowned by family, that we lose our possessions, that we lose our lives for Christ and for the gospel's sake. But these, Jesus promises that these sacrifices are totally worth it. And that brings us to the sixth and final feature of this path to life. And that is, it rewards those who follow Christ. It rewards those who follow, who follows Christ. Look again at verses 29 and 30. Truly I say to you, there is no one who's left all these things for the sake of the kingdom, verse 30, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Friends, there is no one, I repeat, no one who has followed and answered Christ's call who will not be abundantly rewarded. Jesus does not forget his own. He does not forget his disciples. There is no one left out. All will experience the promise of reaping many much more than this time in the age to come eternal life. We don't know exactly all this means. The New Testament fleshes out all the blessings that we have in Christ, all that will be given to us in that future age. But we know that we will have far more abundantly than we, we could ever ask or think. We know it's going to be beyond our wildest imagination. We know that it'll, it'll far outweigh the costs for this temporary affliction is producing an eternal weight of glory for us. So church, see the assurance in your Savior's words here this morning. There is a cost, but the cost is worth it. Do not neglect that. Do not forget that. Our world wants to tell us that the things that are the here and now that this world has to offer, these are the things we should fight for. These are the things we should gratify and please ourselves with. But the Christian life is, is one big lesson in delayed gratification. We are not living for the here and now. We will be blessed in the here and now. He says in this time, but when it comes to the full measure of our blessing, it awaits a future day. And so believer, hold on. Hold fast. Remain steady. Trust your Savior. There is pain, there is a cost, but he does not forget you and he will repay you far and abundantly what you've ever paid out in this life. Jesus paid it all so that he can pay you out of his grace. And so the question for us this morning as we close is, are you on this path to life? Have you trusted completely in Christ? Have you renounced all? Or are you still clinging to something, something that is yours, something that, that you want to hold on to? Friends, Jesus calls that we give it all up. It all belongs to him. And so we need to repent. We need to leave it all behind and cling to him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and know that it is totally worth it. And he will save us in the end, all to his praise and glory. Amen? Let's pray together. Our Father, we do ask that you would please help us to search our own hearts. I pray for all those who are here. 
Lord, you know the condition of each heart and each soul. You know what is going on at the spiritual level. And I ask, Lord, that you would please help those that are in bondage to sin, those that are enslaved to idols, maybe even the idol of riches, as we see in this text, that you would please release them and help them to be free. God, may your mercy and your power enable them to walk away, to let go of all that their heart craves and recognize that everything that they've desire can be found far much more in Jesus Christ himself. May you grant salvation, we pray. And it's in his name we pray, amen.